Well, let's return to John chapter 12 this morning. John in the 12th chapter of his gospel. <clears throat> in John 12, we are engaged with a theologically dense but immensely rewarding section of the gospel. Jesus' donkey ride is now behind him. He will soon be cast out of the city and crucified. Nevertheless, certain Greeks, having come for the Passover in Jerusalem, were seeking Jesus. And Jesus responds to the Greek inquiry by shifting the tense of a verb concerning the hour of the Son of Man's glorification. Up to this point in John's Gospel, we have heard of a coming hour when Jesus will manifest His glory. But suddenly in verse 23, Jesus declares the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's here. It's arrived. But Jesus hastens to clarify that the hour of His glorification is connected with His death death. And that brings us now to verses 27 through 36, a section that we launched into last week. And let's summarize what's in these verses. First of all, Jesus makes further reference to this hour, the hour of his glorification. Second, a voice out of heaven speaks of the glorification of Jesus. And third, Jesus promises to judge the ruler of this world. So last week we examined the hour, the voice, and the judgment. Then fourthly, Jesus speaks of his death, but it's no ordinary death. It's an exalted death in which he is lifted up to draw all people to himself. And then finally, these statements provoke further consternation and controversy with the Jews. All of that is right here in verses 27 through 36. So let's reread the section, and then we will continue our exposition beginning with verse 32. But back up to verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, 
the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, verse 32 is the climactic point in the passage. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In verse 27, the hour of Jesus' glorification points to verse 32. In verse 28, the heavenly voice that claimed it would glorify Jesus' name again points to verse 32. In verse 31, the judgment of the rule of the world also points to verse 32, where Satan was judged on the cross of Christ. So the hour, the voice, and the judgment that we looked at last week, all three point to verse 32. And observe the sequel. Verse 33 clarifies verse 32. He said it's to show by what kind of death he was going to die, referencing verse 32. Then verse 34 indicates that Jesus' statement in verse 32 confused the crowd. Doesn't the law tell us that Christ remains forever? Well, what's all this talk about being lifted up in death? And then verses 35 and 36 record Jesus' further response to the crowd. All that to say, clearly, verse 32 is the center of gravity in the passage. So we had better look at it very, very carefully. In verse 32, Jesus uses the personal pronoun I to refer to his being lifted up. And I, when I am lifted up. But he must also have referred to himself as the Son of Man. We're not told that directly here in the text, but we know this because of the crowd's response in verse 34. The crowd says, how can you say that the Son of Man, that's the I of verse 32, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? So when Jesus said, I... The crowd understood him to be speaking of the Son of Man being lifted up. So here's our question. What does it mean for the Son of Man to be lifted up? Now, on previous occasions, we have discovered the identity of the Son of Man. So let's quickly recall three truths. First of all, Jesus' favorite self-designation is the Son of Man. In other words, that is what he most frequently called himself. I am the Son of Man. Secondly, Daniel 7 first mentions the Son of Man. And in that context, he really is lifted up. He is exalted by the Ancient of Days, seated on a fiery throne to a position of supreme authority over all the nations of the earth. That's the lifting up of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Daniel says, And so to him, that's the Son of Man, was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now follow this very carefully. If Daniel, son of man, and the Christ are the same person, and that explains the crowd's puzzled response in verse 34. The crowd said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So, if the Son of Man's kingdom, according to Daniel, will never be destroyed, then shouldn't Christ's kingdom just last forever? Well, then, how can he say the Son of Man must be lifted up to die? No wonder the crowd is confused. And that leads to a third point on the Son of Man. Thirdly, Jesus, the Son of Man, often defied people's expectations. Often he confused people by his sayings and by his actions. For example, do you recall the first time in the Gospels when Jesus used the term Son of Man to describe himself? It's found in Matthew 8 and verse 20, and here's what it says. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is homeless. The animals are better off than the Son of Man. So how does that fit the vision of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is exalted to rule the universe? And likewise, when Jesus says in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, well, that sounds like Daniel 7, but be prepared for his baffling explanation in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, friends, we can't help but read the Gospels with the outcome in view. I mean, we know the end of the story. We know Jesus will suddenly resurrect and he will ascend to a throne. But how was anyone to know this before it happened? The Son of Man acted in mysterious ways. And that's Paul's term, not mine. Much of the gospel was a mystery hidden away in the inscrutable counsels of the Trinity before it was revealed in human history. Now, to show you this mystery, let's turn to Isaiah 52 and 53. And let's probe this mystery just a little bit further. This is the third time in our work through John that we have turned to these two passages. Isaiah 52 and 53. And we have heard before of God referring to someone as high and lifted up. But in Isaiah, he is not called the Son of Man. Here in Isaiah, we find an individual who is called simply the servant. And we know that Isaiah 53 famously describes the suffering of this servant. Look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hardly more beautiful words have ever been penned. And these words describe the death of the suffering servant. But would you notice how the suffering servant passage is prefaced in Isaiah 52? Verse 13 doesn't seem to be describing the same person at all. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. God's servant is exalted. Well, that sounds like Daniel 7 to me, not Isaiah 53. But what does verse 13 refer to? Does it refer to Jesus' resurrection? His ascension to the Father's right hand? The scene in Daniel 7 where Jesus receives the scepter of all the nations? Actually, it refers to none of those things. How do I know? Just keep reading. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. When God's servant is exalted high and lifted up, he is unrecognizable in his marred, ugly, wretched human condition. Verse 14, he looks like no son of man ever carried in a mother's womb. Beaten, whipped, pummeled by Roman soldiers, nailed to a cross. Does that grotesque figure hanging there even belong to the children of mankind? Yes. And he will sprinkle the nations with his blood. He will astonish the kings of the earth. And in the words of verse 15, that which they have not heard, they understand that's the mystery that Paul is talking about. What a strange death. High and lifted up, exalted through a brutal death. So with that scene in mind, let's return to John chapter 12 with a question. Here's the question. What other death in all human history has drawn as much attention as the death of Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus' death is without rival the most intriguing, discussed, contemplated, and written about death in all of human history. Jesus himself is easily the most written about person in all human history. In the 19th century alone, there were some 60,000 known attempts to write a life of Jesus. 60,000 attempts in one century. 
Now compare that with 800 to 1,000 biographies total written of the world's most famous people. 60,000 one century. Jesus is easily the most written about person in all of human history. And Jesus' death has been drawing the attention of the nations for two millennia, and the numbers are steadily increasing. So can you explain this very strange convergence of crucifixion and exaltation? Well, look at Jesus' own words, his prediction right there in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's a prediction of what's coming. That will happen. Now, would you have the audacity to claim that about your own death? Friends, the ugly instrument on which Jesus died has indeed already become the world's greatest symbol of hope. Today, the cross is the most visible, transcultural, transnational, and transhistorical symbol on planet Earth. And we have every, every reason to believe that's just going to keep on growing. If some alien civilization were to visit our planet and to look for one universal human symbol that shows up in every country and in every culture, it would be the cross. The cross has become an ornament of beauty, a Christmas tree decoration, the floor plan of a Gothic cathedral. Thousands of beautiful white crosses in perfect geometrical alignment stretch across the vast emerald green military cemetery in Normandy. In 1922, the French sculptor Paul Landowski created an iconic statue of Christ the Redeemer. It's in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And it weighs an astonishing 635 metric tons. And Christ's arms stretch out to 28 meters, forming the shape of a cross. The Jerusalem Cross, also called the Crusader's Cross, which dates the 11th century, depicts a central cross. And each of the four quadrants is a smaller cross symbolizing the four wounds that Christ received from the Roman nails. It can be found widely from England to Egypt and to the ends of the earth. In Laodicea, archaeologists unearthed crosses stamped on the top of a Jewish menorah. These are enduring testimonies to Jewish synagogues who have embraced Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. In Kerala, southern India, churches adorned with crosses date their lineage back to 52 A.D. when the Apostle Thomas is believed to have founded there some eight churches. In Beijing, stone inscriptions of beautifully ornamented crosses date to the Mongol Empire in the 13th century. Genghis Khan was known to have Christian advisors in his court. And in fact, the origins of Christianity in China go back much, much earlier. Images of Christ Pontocrator, Christ Almighty, with a cruciform halo over his head, adorn hundreds of churches and domes across the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantines, in fact, stamped images of crosses into their coins, and they were carried up rivers by explorers and traders, reaching as far away as the Scandinavian fjords, and all the way along the Silk Road to the outer steps of Mongolia, little coins with crosses. 
crosses the door in the cavernous cave churches etched in the rocks of Cappadocia in Turkey. You can still see them today. Celtic crosses turned up all over Ireland and England, especially during the proliferation of Irish missions between the 9th and the 12th centuries. The Celtic cross encircles the transept of the cross with a nimbus ring symbolizing eternity. In the subterranean catacombs of Rome, crosses adorn the crypts of Christians awaiting the resurrection. Crosses were planted along the Amazonian banks and the mountain passes of Patagonia when Christianity penetrated the Aztec and the Incan empires. On the windswept hills of South Dakota today, overlooking the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre, scores of crosses punctuate a right of weeds, making the burial, marking the burial spots of Lakota Sioux Indians. Crosses can be found in Native American communities from Florida all the way to Alaska, from Maine all the way to Arizona. In fact, the oldest gospel-preaching church embracing the cross in our country today is a Wampanoag church in Mashpee, Massachusetts. It's still preaching the cross. And I am just scratching the surface of history. There are crosses all over this globe. And these untold millions, even billions of crosses are truly astonishing when you consider two facts. Let me give you two facts about all those crosses. First, all those crosses point to a single cross. A single cross on which a man died 2,000 years ago. And second, the cross in the ancient world was the greatest symbol of hopelessness and destruction, utter defeat. That's what it meant. Complete hopelessness, utter defeat. The cross was a cruel instrument of torture dreaded by all who fell under the trampling heel of Rome. Josephus tells us that the Romans crucified 500 Jews daily when they finally breached the walls of Jerusalem and overran the city in A.D. 70. The Jewish cause was hopeless. 2,000 years later, Jews still converge at the Wailing Wall, pouring out their hopeless prayers. That is happening as I speak. No city in all the world has witnessed so many hopeless prayers. In 71 BC, the legendary Spartacus, escaped slave, former gladiator, and leader of the opposition to Rome during the Third Servile War, met with defeat. 6,000 of his followers were crucified along the Appian Road stretching from Rome to Capum. And they served as a gruesome deterrent to all future challenges to Roman rule. You will be destroyed. From Spartacus' slave revolt to the zealots' revolt in Jerusalem, crucifixion claimed the lives of literally thousands upon thousands of people who challenged the iron scepter of Rome. The cross was the most humbling, degrading death the Romans could devise. It symbolized utter defeat and hopelessness. These crucifixions were always public. They served as deterrence for would-be criminals. The victims hung naked along busy roads. 
Rarely were their bodies buried, but left to rot under a boiling sun. In Rome, crucifixions were carried out on the Esquiline Hill. And because vultures came to devour the remains of those decaying bodies, the Romans referred to the vulture as the Esquiline bird. Crucifixions were so ghastly, the Roman order, Cicero proclaimed the very word cross should be removed from the person of the Roman citizen, from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The very mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen. It's no wonder Paul used the term scandal to refer to the cross. The Christian apologist Justin Martyr says of the Hellenistic world, they say that our madness consists in the fact that we put a crucified man in second place after the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of the world. That's sheer madness. So here's my question. How did this object of scandal, this symbol of the most wretched means of death, this symbol of hopelessness and defeat, ever become the world's most enduring symbol of victory? Here's the answer. One man, one cross, one death. That's the only explanation. That mighty force of crosses from every tribe and tongue and nation, they all point to one man lifted up on a cross in death, now exalted to the right hand of God. That's what Jesus predicted, John 12 and verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Friends, verse 32 is not only the center of gravity in our passage, it's the center of gravity in world history. Jesus' humiliation was his exaltation. His shame was his glory. His degradation was his ascension. His death is the most memorialized event in world history, and he predicted it. Dallas Willard writes of Jesus, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world as he himself predicted. He so graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on earth. So do we quite understand verse 32? Well, friends, the crowd did not understand at all. And hence the response in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, I have emphasized that when reading the Old Testament, we do indeed pick up numerous threads that eventually get woven together into a single portrait of Christ in the Gospels. For instance, Jesus is the suffering servant, the promised Messiah, the second Moses, the second Adam, and David's heir. But when working through the Old Testament, it's not immediately apparent that all these people are one and the same person. It's all very clear in hindsight But if you're not looking backwards but forwards, it's not so clear. Now clearly the Jews were looking for the Christ. Right? That's verse 34. They are looking for the Christ. And Christ is the Greek term for the Hebrew term Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah refer to an anointed one. One who is set apart by anointing as king. And the crowd correctly understood 
that the Christ would bring on some sort of permanent kingdom. That much they got right. Several Old Testament texts actually gesture in this direction. For instance, listen to the famous words of Isaiah 9. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen to this. Of the increase of his government... And of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Listen to this. From this time forth and forevermore. A Messiah will be born. And the border of his kingdom will expand indefinitely. And his throne will be established precisely forever. That's Isaiah 9. Listen to Ezekiel 37, verse 25. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob. Where your fathers live. We've been reading about that land in Genesis. They and their children, their children's children shall dwell there. Listen to this. Forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So if this reference to David is a reference to David's son, this certainly sounds like the coming Messiah will establish a kingdom forever. It's from passages like these that first century Judaism worked out a doctrine of the eternality of the coming Messiah. Now specific details were vague enough, but Messiah's enduring reign had really come into sharp focus in the first century. D.A. Carson notes, what is clear is that the Palestinian Judaism of the time expected the Messiah to be triumphant. Most expected him to be eternal. And that understanding of the Messiah then throws considerable light on the Jews' question in verse 34. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That is, what's this talk about him being lifted up in death? Who is this Son of Man? Now understand, the Jews believed they had Scripture on their side concerning the eternality of the Messiah. So if this man who keeps calling himself Son of Man is actually the Messiah, why is he talking about his death? That makes no sense. And let's state the obvious. The Jews were correct. They properly understood the Old Testament to teach the Messiah's reign endures forever. They got that part right. The Messiah will reign forever. But the Jews had two basic misunderstandings. First of all, they did not understand how the Messiah's reign would be inaugurated. How will this reign commence? How will God inaugurate his own son? Jesus would not be lifted up on a throne. He would be lifted up on a cross. Would you have thought of that? If you're looking for the eternal Messiah, the son of David to come, he's going to be inaugurated, lifted up on a cross? This is the strange paradox of Psalm 2. You knew I was going to go there, didn't you? The nations will rage against God's anointed. 
the rulers will take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and His anointed. They will cast off the reign of Christ. They will cast off the reign of the Messiah. And God will laugh at their folly. What the world called a crucifixion, God called an inauguration. And here's what God says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The world saw a crucifixion. God says, as for me, here's what I'm seeing. My son is established on Zion, my holy hill. And God says to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And those words were fulfilled at the resurrection. And God says to Jesus, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friends, are those words fulfilled? And the answer is yes, absolutely. From the moment he resurrected, Jesus declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Psalm 2 is fulfilled. God inaugurated the Son of Man as his Messiah, even while the nations were lifting him up on a cross. And God, my friends, just pulled off a messianic overthrow of the powers of darkness And he inaugurated his son as Messiah to his eternal kingdom, even while the world thought we're done with Jesus. This is why God laughs at the nations. So how do we respond to God's marvelous inauguration? Well, the psalm tells us. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. That's what Isaiah says. Let the kings be astonished at him. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And that's true of rulers. That's true of all of us. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. All that to say, the Jews did not understand how the Messiah's reign would be inaugurated. But Jesus has been set up on a throne. Secondly, The Jews did not understand how to pull all those Old Testament threads together into a single portrait. They did indeed get the eternality of the Messiah correct. But they did not understand that Jesus was also a suffering Son of Man. Same person. They did not embrace the complexity of Jesus' person. He is the suffering servant. He is the reigning Messiah. We ran into the same dilemma back in John chapter 6. Remember in John 6, you had these people and they're defecting from Jesus. He fed them once but refused to feed them a second time. Well, the crowd wanted a second Moses. But they could not accept a second Moses who was also the sacrificial manna come down from heaven to be consumed in death. You've got to embrace both. He is the second Moses and he is the sacrificial manna. Unless you eat of me, you have no part in me. The Jews wanted a Messiah, but not a servant. A second Moses, but not a sacrificial lamb. They wanted a throne without a cross. And a second exodus without an atonement. And what they did not understand is that all the threads of the tapestry have to come together. And with Jesus, you get it all. With Jesus, everything converges in one person. 
The Old Testament, friends, gives us a complex variety of symbols, types, characters, and predictions all over the place. Point at the most important person who has ever lived. But you really have to work at it to put all those pieces together before you truly recognize who Jesus is. Now, will Jesus answer the question of the crowds in verse 34 concerning the Son of Man? Well, not directly. Or to be precise, not yet. Look at verse 35. Here's his answer. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Well, Jesus' answer, ironically, does not shed a great deal of light on their specific question. That's kind of the irony of it, right? Who is the Son of Man, they ask? Who is the Son of Man, right? Well, walk in the light, Jesus says. Well, what is this business of the Son of Man Man being lifted up in death? And Jesus says, the light is with you a little while longer. Well, what does that mean? Why doesn't Jesus give a more direct answer? And the answer is, I can't say for certain. Maybe you have a better answer, I don't know. But I will say this. When you compare the four Gospels, maybe you read through a harmony of the Gospels, you will notice something very intriguing about Jesus' answers to questions during the final week in Jerusalem. During Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, his answers become more cryptic, more confusing, a little less clear than they've been all the way along, at least in my estimation. And why is that? Well, Jesus is done dealing with unresponsive people. Instead of answering direct questions, in fact, we saw this in Matthew, remember this? He says, I'm not going to answer any more of your questions. Right? Instead of answering direct questions verbally, he is going to show them his answer instead. There is this transition that happens in the final week where his answers are no longer so verbal. He's like, I'm going to show you the answer. He is about to die and pull off a resurrection and power. And that is the answer. Within a week, they will have an answer, but it's not a verbal answer. It is a resurrected body. Who is the Son of Man? What is this business of him being lifted up? Well, just wait a week and you will have your answer. It will be perfectly clear like a heavenly light shining out of a dark tomb. The light is here. You just have to be able to see it. Look at me. When Jesus dies and resurrects a theology, the Old Testament just suddenly just snaps into place for the disciples. You really see this when you turn a page and you go to Acts, right? Peter stands up at Pentecost and it's all of a sudden like, whoa, there's the light. We get it. We understand what he was talking about. The light shines very brightly. But for the time being, Jesus' counsel is simply, well, just walk in the light. Just keep following me. He's going to say to the disciples in John 17, okay, here you are, you're with me at the very end. Others have defected, you're still here with me. Just keep following, even if you don't quite understand. 
Jesus and John's gospel is the light, the light of the world. And that was clear from the opening paragraph. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So just keep looking at the light. And so what Jesus is calling for in verses 35 through 36, friends, is just simple trust in him for the present. Even if we don't get all of our questions answered immediately, just keep looking at the light. And can we really let that be the application for us today? That application remains true today. We, we have considerably more light than, the, than any Old Testament saint. Do you, know, do you understand that we, we know more about Jesus and his gospel than John the Baptist did? We know the gospel better than the apostles did before the resurrection of Christ. But still, our futures are often very dark and uncertain. Our lives are still full of mystery and uncertainty. The ways of God can indeed be very mysterious to us today. There are Christians all over the world today who are suffering. They are carrying their crosses for Christ. And it's a mystery to them. Why is this happening to us? The world does seem chaotic. It does seem out of control. And if you don't believe that, just leave the United States and go anywhere. Right? You'll find trouble all over the world and look closer at home. The world is chaotic. It is out of control. The Lord allows suffering. And we might even be questioned to ask, we might even be tempted rather to question who, who's really running this world? Has Psalm 2 really been fulfilled? And our calling is really just to keep our eyes just fixed on Jesus. We are called to let that cross just continually transform our lives. We are called to keep our sight on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are called to just come out into the light. Let the light shine into the deepest recesses of our hearts. Let the light reprove our thinking, our emotions, our attitudes. In the words of verse 36, just go right on believing in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus on his cross is the light of the world. The cross shines on the path, illumining the way from this creation to the next creation. The cross is the way of suffering and the glory. And I want to read to you from an outspoken atheist, Albert Camus, who in a moment of desperation really seemed to understand this. Albert Camus could not get past the cross. Albert Camus was a French atheist, existentialist. He wrote a book called The Rebel, an essay on man in revolt. That, that book has long fascinated me. And here's what he wrote. He said, Christ came to solve two major problems, evil and death. His solution consisted first in experiencing them. Even the atheist is drawn to the cross of Christ. The man God suffers too with patience. Night on Golgotha is so important in history, in the history of mankind only because in its shadow the divinity abandoned its traditional privileges and drank to the last drop despair included the agony of death. 
This is the explanation of the Lama Sabachthani and the heart-rending doubt of Christ in agony. For God to be a man, he must despair. Even the atheist is drawn to the light of the cross. And once you understand that God's humiliation was his exaltation, his suffering was his glory, you, you will just, you'll never look at the world the same way again. Light will just flood your soul. So friend, perhaps you're here today and you've never really put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you to really look at the words of verse 32 and just marvel at this prediction. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus predicted before he died. Would you predict this of your own death? Here's what Jesus predicted. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That is happening all over the world today. Jesus is still drawing people to himself as he, pre- as he predicted through his death. So let me really, really encourage you to look again on the death of Jesus Christ and ask God's Spirit to allow light to flood into your soul and into your mind and to transform the way that you think. Can we pray together? Let me ask all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we would just take a moment and pray for anyone here today, including our children, our young ones in the nursery, anyone here today who has not yet embraced the cross, would you just pray and ask that the Lord might flood their mind and their heart with light? And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, can I just encourage you to open your heart and to say, I I at least want to find out more. This is a most unusual death. How how do we account for this cross on which this man died 2,000 years ago that has revolutionized the world? How do we account for that? There must be something to this. Would you just ask the Holy Spirit maybe to reveal more of that truth to you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the light of the gospel. It may seem a very strange thing for someone here today to look on a cross and to see that cross as the light. But we thank you, Lord, for the light that has flooded our souls and has given us true understanding of the world. We thank you, Lord, for this death that Jesus died on our behalf. We thank you for the atonement that was made for our sins. We thank you for the victory that he won over our sin, over death and the grave. And we thank you that the Son of Man has been exalted to the place of honor at your right hand. And we pray that our children, our young ones in the nursery, the children in our homes, or 
teens, college students, Lord, adults here who are in their careers, Lord, even people who may be retired but as yet have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be a day of light and that you might continue to draw people to yourself as they gaze on the cross. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. We just encourage you, as John encouraged you earlier, if you want any help or would like to make some further inquiry, would you just note that in the Connect card and drop that one of the boxes on the way out or say something to me on the way out. I'd be really, really happy to talk with you further and uh, allow this day to be a day of light just shining into your heart.